Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague, Stuart Mandel. We are taping this Sunday night. Uh, Tomorrow morning, I'm flying to Arizona for conference meetings. The Pac-12, Big 12, some version of the Big 10, Mountain West, uh, and Mac, I believe, will be there. Um, So a lot of people who are around work in college football, as well as college basketball, will be there. But Stu, we just concluded another NFL draft, started Thursday night. I think this is one of the more interesting drafts I remember in recent years. Um, I don't want to say I was riveted to it, but I probably did not miss that much. I had to leave for my son's football team for an hour and a half on Friday, and that was about it. How much did you end up watching? I watched Thursday night, um, the whole first round. A little bit of the second round, though, then I kind of switched my attention to Warriors-Kings uh, game six. And then Saturday morning, we had a softball game. By the time we got back, it was kind of mid-sixth round, I think. And at that point, you might as well just follow on, on Twitter. But I was interested in a lot of the nuggets that come out once the draft is over. And there were a couple I wanted to bring up. But just spur of the moment here, why did you say this is one of the most riveting drafts you can remember? I, well, first of all, you had four quarterbacks sitting in the mix. And, you know, we wrote a lot about this at the athletic about Will Levis and maybe the mock draft folks were a little higher on him than some of the, some of the coaches and personnel people were. Um, But either one of the things that really stood out to me was the Anthony Richardson factor. And I wrote about this in my takeaways column on the athletic Sunday, which was I'd say probably 10 years ago, maybe even as recently as like four years ago, I think there would be increasing skepticism about whether somebody who didn't play a ton or didn't have a ton of success at even at a high level, um, but, you know, completed in the mid 50% range, which isn't exactly jaw dropping. Um, you look at it and go, Ooh, how's this going to work? But given the, um, remarkable success Josh Allen has had, but even some of the success you've seen from Daniel Jones last year with the Giants and certainly with Jalen Hurts with the Eagles, we're seeing coaches, at least a handful of them, be very, very open to working, accentuating what a guy does well and maybe not majoring the stuff that they still need work on. So it's like on-the-job development. And I think it's key that, and as I wrote this in the column, Anthony Richardson, arguably the most gifted athlete who's ever come into the NFL as a quarterback, 6'4", plus 245, runs faster than almost anybody and has an arm that rivals Josh Allen in terms of arm strength. Um, you just don't see guys that big, that fast with that kind of arm. And now he's going to work, going to play for Shane Steichen, who is one of these you know handful of coaches who is ideal to work with him and bring him along because Shane Steichen had Justin Herbert his rookie year at the Chargers and then really did an amazing job with the Eagles and Jalen Hurts. Well, I was dead wrong about Josh Allen. Um, and that was for all in, in the reasons I was so down on him are the same reasons to be down on Anthony Richardson. There just wasn't a track record of these, these, these guys who are all measurables and don't have the college production. It, it doesn't generally go well. Um, he proved to be quite the exception to that. Does that mean, you know, and this is a copycat sport that worked with Josh Allen. Can we you now do that with this guy, with Anthony Richardson? We'll see. 
I said, I, I don't think it's ideal that he's going to a team that doesn't have, you know, a, a logical guy. I know they signed Gardner Minshew, but like a, a guy here, like, you know, we, if this guy is, has to still be our starter for the next year or two while Anthony Richardson develops, that would be fine. Cause I, I see so raw. He's, he was a starter for one season in college and, and that track record, by the way, of guys who were only a starter for one year is not great. But after the Josh Allen thing, I'm done trying to predict how guys are going to do in the NFL. I'm more, you know, what, what, what I find interesting about the draft is kind of some of the things that reflects about college. So why don't we start with the thing that I took 10 seconds to research? Um, it, I just happened to see one of the Texas A&M beat writers tweet out Texas A&M's draft picks from that day. Okay, so A&M this past weekend had a guy taken in the third round, Devon Chain, Antonio Johnson in the fifth round, Jalen Jones in the seventh round. Not that great. Maybe not surprising coming off a of five and seven season. But then I go a little bit back further. Um, Jimbo Fisher has had uh, five seasons at A&M, which means five drafts after those seasons. And in those five years, he has had exactly two players selected in the first or second round. Comparison's sake, during Kevin Sumlin's last five years at A&M, six first-rounders, two second-rounders. So, and this is, you know, he's had the highly ranked recruiting classes. He's had time now to, I mean, the three guys that got drafted were in the 2020 class. Obviously, that's as soon as you can turn pro. 21, 22 guys could have been in this draft. Bruce, what are they paying the guy $95 million for? You know, right now, I think they've, a lot of fans got to be wondering the same question. I mean, the one class that I think is in that window where you look at it and go, okay, this didn't add up. He had a t- number five class in 2019, uh, a couple of five stars to Marvin Leal, who, had, you know, had his moments at, at, you know, at A&M and is now in the NFL, Kenyon Green, an offensive tackle. Baylor Cup was a tight end. And then you kind of go down the list. And there was a lot of guys. Isaiah Spiller was in that class. Cam Brown, who's now transferred to UCLA. There's a lot of guys who just kind of, you know, you heard of them and it just didn't really, you know, I think that's one of the classes that is a reason why things have sputtered under him. I mean, I don't know if I would say this is an indictment. The thing I would be a little leery of reading too much with the with the numbers on draft guys is, first of all, you know, it's all draft guys. So it could be a bunch of sixth and seventh rounders as opposed to, you know, first and second rounders, but also, you know, into the singular class, you know, there's some teams who have a lot of guys come back. So they don't have guys in the draft, you know, whereas other teams just, you know, they had some six years and fifth year guys in there, but it's not surprising Stu. I mean, as you said, I mean, they didn't even make a bowl game this year, this past year. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just think it's like you, you just wonder. All right, let's. I mean, I think we've talked about this a little bit, but if if at what point do you think? Because we both think if there's another year like last year, they're going to find the money to get rid of him. But what if it's seven and five? He's probably still there, but I don't know. I don't know. It depends on how angry the boosters are because this is going to be quite expensive, but. Yeah, I mean, I think I've been, I was giving him the benefit of the doubt for too long, right? It didn't, this was the worst season, but he's only had one really good season since he's been there. Mm-hmm. And he was brought 
with the mandate to win a national championship. Like that's what Jimbo Fisher was hired to do. And if it was a situation where um, they've, they've, they've kind of Curry smart at for a couple of years there, they've had top 10 teams. They just haven't quite gotten to that national championship level. No, we're talking eight and fives. We're talking five and seven last year. They had that one enormous win over Alabama uh, two years ago. Other than that, it's just been very unmemorable. And, and I don't, you know, if you want to take off an AM fan, try to suggest that he's been no better than Kevin Sumlin because you will hear it. But then you see numbers like that. I mean, but, I mean, they uh, you, will, yeah. Will you know? I mean, I mean, the reality, the, the record is the record. It's not like after three years now. But Jimbo's been there a so, long time. They have so much invested in him. You know, there's, he was going to be the savior. They gave him this enormous contract. Kevin Sumlin was very easy to run out when it came time to run him out. And I, by the way, I'm not saying they shouldn't have. They had that program had definitely flatlined and had a lot of a lot of eight and fives. But there, if there was one thing uh, he was good at doing, it was producing Johnny Manziel, Mike Evans. No, those were uh, in in fairness to Mike Sherman. Those were Mike Sherman recruits. They were his recruits, but I mean, it's not like you just. I mean, Johnny Man would Johnny I mean, Manziel those, necessarily played the- over under a, another coach? I don't know if he would. I don't know if a lot of those guys. You know, we had a story about three weeks ago about a coaching overhaul and how it works. And Sean Porter, who's one of the captains of that team that went, you know, as a top five team, it's the only top five team Texas A&M had had in like a stretch of 50 plus years. And he said, and, and someone told me this for the story as well. Mike Sherman was a really good recruiter and had developed some players there but those guys in that locker room really responded more to someone. And it was like, he kind of was more laid back, you know, more high energy at the same time. And they really flourished. And then a few years later, the locker room wasn't quite as strong or as, as focused or maybe as accountable, you know, cause honestly, Johnny was one of the leaders inside that program to some degree. And you know, while there was talent, it didn't have the same chemistry. It didn't have probably the same accountability factor. I mean, that's where, again, that's where it's tricky where, you know, we're talking about one, one regimes, you know, recruits and maybe the, they, they kind of settle a little bit of the culture and then when somebody else comes in, if they're usually, it's a very different style than what they just fired. And then the players respond or maybe they don't. He recruited guys like uh, Miles Garrett, most prominently Christian Kirk, Justin. You're talking Evans, someone. You're talking someone. someone. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, and I do think if a guy like a guy like um, where, where Sherman was really, really fantastic as a recruiter was an offense. Uh, he was an old offensive line guy. Yeah. So you had Matt. They had a ton you of had those guys. Cedric Aboye. You had Jokel. Those guys were all first round picks, and a couple of them really high first round offensive linemen. Okay, um, the opposite of Jimbo Fisher, I think we would agree in terms of getting your money's worth uh, would be uh, Kirby Smart. So who can you know, he's had a couple years head start there, but basically Kirby Smart recruits top one or two classes. He wins national championships and then he sends them into the NFL. Here's some stats from our Georgia writer, Seth Emerson, about the phenomenal 2021 Georgia defense, about half of which is now playing for the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, 14 members 
of that 2021 Georgia defense have now been drafted. That is 14 members of one defense have been drafted, half of them in the first round. Only one player who started the national championship game against Alabama in 2021 was not drafted. But four players who came off the bench in that game have been drafted. Um, that is an insane number. So is um, the fact that they now hold the record for last year. They set the record for most uh, picks in a year. They now have the most picks in two years and the most picks in three years. It's, I mean, he's even topping some of the, some of the things that, that Nick Saban has done at Alabama. No doubt. It is very, very impressive um, to say the least. And the numbers, I think, went from the time he took over. So he's he had uh, no one second. I had a number from this too. While you're looking that up, the starters from that 2021 defense have been drafted. Trayvon Walker was uh, first round last year. So it was Jordan Davis, Devontae Wyatt, and Nolan Smith was first round this year. Uh, Quay Walker was first round last year. Kobe Dean was third round last year. Darian Kendrick was sixth round last year. Keely Ringo, fourth round this year. Lewis Kine, first round last year. Christopher Smith, fifth round this year. And then you throw in guys like Jalen Carter, who was technically a backup that year. First round this year, obviously. Um, Channing Tindall was third round last year. Robert Beal, fifth round this year. Amir Speed, who was spent this past season at Michigan State, seventh round uh, this year. This was the number that I was going to say that I, somebody had sent to me that was, was on Twitter. Um, in the first seven years at Alabama, Nick Saban had 36 players drafted. So obviously that's more than five per year. Over, over his first six, seven years, Davos Sweeney, 33 players. Kirby Smart over his first seven years, 55 players, almost 20 more than Nick Saban had in this, you know, in the same same stretch that's pretty that's amazing that pretty re remarkable yeah um i want to while we're talking about this um i had a stat in my in my column about your favorite football program the iowa hawkeyes i get it you know the offense has been mind-numbing but his ability his being kirk ferentz ability to evaluate and develop talent compared to what you know, the experts or what the recruiting experts think they're bringing in is really also remarkable. If you look at, so he had, Iowa had four players go in like the first 80 picks, including three in the top 34. None of them were a five-star or a four-star. And one, you know, like those guys were like, you know, the 52nd best Lucas Van Ness or, you know, the, the 40, the 58th best at this position. Riley Moss was like the 230th cornerback in his class, and he was a two-star. And it's like time and time again, it's amazing what that program is able to do with guys that almost nobody's paying attention to. I think that they probably have the best track record of that of any program in the country. Um, and I think that's part of what makes it all the more maddening, right? That they can't, that he can't. Uh, that he keeps putting his son out there as the OC and they keep fielding these just absolutely uh, abysmal offenses. Cause what, what might they be capable of with this much NFL talent? If they had just a decent offense and maybe this coming year, 
Maybe it could happen this year with Cade McNamara as the quarterback, but they do still have the same OC who is trying to um, beat the beat the clock, if you will, and score 25 points a game. But no, I mean, his record for two decades of putting guys, uh, I don't know, you know, recruiting profiles off the top of my head, but a lot, I mean, some, a lot of these guys that he's put in the NFL over the years were walk-ons when they got to Iowa. So they know how to find them. They know how to develop them schematically on offense. They are somewhere stuck in the stone ages. And that's, that's frustrating. Uh, Cause I think they could, they could be going to new year six bowls more frequently um, if they had a competent offense. You also mentioned in your column, Stanford, who has, First of all, Stanford, I saw this stat since the beginning of the Pac-12 instead of the Pac-10. That is the team that has had the most players drafted, even more than USC um, or Oregon. But so in your column, you point out that in this draft, um, they had five five players picked, one more than both USC and UCLA, and two more than Utah. The most damning thing about it was Stanford had those five draft picks, but only six total wins the past two years. Yeah, I mean, that just reaffirms uh, a lot of the reporting I did for the downfall of David Shaw story last year. Um, And the coaching, they had some great coaches on that staff uh, at their peak there when he was winning Pac-12 titles and they were going to Rose Bowls. And then one by one, they lost those guys. Um, but how much do you think some of that is a reflection? He was, you know, it was his offense. He was the play caller. I mean, you, you just bashed, and I'm not disagreeing with this, but you just bashed Kirk Ferentz and Brian Ferentz. I mean, here they had a bunch of, you know, their quarterback, Tanner McKee, who was a talented, you know, former Elite 11 guy. He went on a mission. He's big. He's really smart. He can throw it really well. They had two big receivers. Um you know, who, who went, went in the, went and, you know, in the draft over the weekend, they had some good DBs. I mean, you know, one of the coaches who they had till recently, who was really good was Dwayne Aquina. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if there's any coach he's now in Arizona, but I don't know if there's any coach in college football who has a bigger resume or a better resume for developing high level defensive backs. Um, And I don't want to, you know, you to revisit, you know, everything you think about Stanford about, just how it fell apart but it's I just mean, one of those yeah. things where it just is like kind of sobering to look at it complacency set in stubbornness to your point not you know he kept running that same offense when most of college football had gone away from it and he wouldn't i mean they went three and nine in 2021 and he didn't fire anybody and he was very adamantly not going to fire anybody same exact staff the next year and you expect different results. And no, they go three and nine again. I feel bad, uh, actually, for Tanner McKee because you, know, you look at recent Stanford quarterbacks, it's kind of become a, a pipeline, right? Davis Mills was picked in the third round, starts for the Texans. And we'll see. But I don't think, you know, I mean, they didn't uh, draft uh, Tanner McKee to be a starter. And I think physically, in some ways, when I first saw him, I thought this guy could be even better than davis mills just he's big he's strong um but he just seemed like he got worse and worse uh and had no help uh no offensive line they had a really bad off yeah they had a really bad off they had no running i mean they all their running backs got hurt they're starting a safety at running back so they could just opponent uh defenses could just tee off on him so you know 
I think similar thing at my alma mater. They had uh, Northwestern had a, their highest draft pick since 1989. They had four guys picked, and they went one and eleven. You know, I'm not saying you obviously need more than four guys to have a winning team, um, but you know, to have at least some evidence that they're getting high level guys in there and just be so bad is to me is again, a reflection of bad coaching. Um, well, well uh, will he have any pressure on him if he doesn't get more than like three wins? Not like, that he would get fired. Cause I don't think that's possible, but you know, he himself would have to, at that point, kind of look in the mirror and say, um, have like, I do, run do my people, do people around Northwestern care enough about football that like, you know, if it's four or five wins every year around there for a couple of more years, they just be like, we're okay. It's, we're not, you know, we're not Ohio State. We're not Penn State. We're not Michigan. Well, it's always been we're not Ohio State. We're not Penn State. We're not Michigan. I All right. We're not. We're not. Everybody we're there not is always just, I think people have been just making bowl games regularly has been seen as, you know, very successful. The fact they got into a couple of Big Ten title games was overachieving. But if they were to go on a run of, you know, many, many losing seasons, I don't know. I don't know what the magic number is where you would just get fed up. But the problem last year was it wasn't just four and eight, right? Five and seven, four and eight was one and 11 with losses to an FCS team and a Mac team. Um, I mean, that's just brutal. That's just brutal. And so if they come back and have another season like that, that's, that's going to be real problematic. Um, But again, they're not going to, they're not going to fire him, at least not just yet. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now, sometimes I am a little bit hesitant to read too much into one year. Like Jimbo, we looked back at five years of draft picks. Kirk Ferentz, long track record of draft picks. Yeah, one stat that happened over the weekend is that Washington had no players drafted for the first time in decades. Lest you think that's a sign of trouble, it is actually quite scary for the Pac-12. They won 11 games last year 
and had nobody drafted for the first time since 2009 because everybody's coming back. Michael Penix and all those receivers, they all said, you know, they've got some great pass rushers. They all said, we're coming back for another run it, run it back. Um, Florida State, very similar. No, nobody uh, of substance drafted because they're all coming back. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say off that. Well, I just, uh, if you're ha- trying to handicap the 2023, 2023 season, um, stuff like that is of note. Now, I'm curious to your opinion, Michael Penix, and we'll throw Bo Nix in this conversation as well. I mean, those are guys that it was a little surprising to see them come back, but I also was under the impression that their draft stock wasn't that high. If they have both, just both guys, if they have another really big year next year, what is their draft ceiling? I, I think Penix could be a top five pick. His arm is that good, and he's he's athletic. I don't. He's got really good receivers around him. I think people think he has, you know, is playing in a good system. I think he could really shoot up in this draft. I don't know if he could unseat Caleb Williams. You know, I wrote this in a story a couple of days ago about Caleb Williams. One thing that's unique, and it it doesn't really matter, but it matters for right now, just for conversation purposes at least, is Caleb Williams is one of the rare college quarterbacks, young ones, who NFL people have seen a lot and know because he he spent like three years going to that QB collective where he had real NFL coaches around him. You know, Sean McVay works that camp. Mike Shanahan has worked that camp. A few other, you know, Mike McDaniel. There's so there are guys in the league. Like when I did this story, you know, I talked to a quarterback coach who knows him pretty well. And whereas some of the other guys, they just don't, you know, what what they'll say is, yeah, I saw him on, you know, the TV copy a couple times. It's, you know, I like what I see, but they can't really go too specific because they're not studying them anywhere near like they would study you know, in the beginning stages of, let's say, January or, or, or not January, but like February, where they're getting into guys and, okay, now we got to evaluate them, you know, because they're not going to waste their time evaluating somebody when now, but that's why it's, it's really too soon to tell. But in, just in terms of, you know, I think people want to see a little more consistency from him, you know, the UCLA game was not great, but, but there were moments in the Oregon game that were, you, you know, there's definitely a little like the Josh Allen piece of this. I'm not saying it's quite his quite arm is quite to that level, but there are some throws where people go, did you see this? And those, those kind of traits definitely get people's attention. I mean, my, the, Michael Penix is not a, a question of production. Last season, he had 65% completions, 4,600 yards, 31 touchdowns, eight interceptions. My question would be, and again, don't, I don't, I'm not an evaluator. I'm a questioner. I'm an interviewer. Michael Penix uh, is about to turn 23 uh, in a week, which means by the time his rookie NFL season starts, he'll be 24. A little Hendon Hooker-esque. Um, if that's that how does, highly... That doesn't, that doesn't... I don't think that's an issue at all. Okay, but if that's... If you think that's what he's capable of, and he's already been in college for five years, well, then why is he coming back? You know, if he, if he has a chance to be that high a draft pick, you would think he'd be in the draft right now. I think, you know, from visiting with Michael Penix Jr. a week and a half or two weeks ago, um, I think he feels like, hey, this is, we have a chance to have a really special season. He's loaded with receivers. That core is even better. 
Um, he definitely feels a connection to the place. And, you know, I think he, with NIL, you know, you can make, you know, make a good amount of money, at least for now. And then can I have two seasons here where I can really elevate my stock? You know, because I think people looked at it and not wrongly so. You had three quarterbacks go in the top four picks in this draft. That's that's pretty remarkable, you know. So that's a deep draft. And that's not even including Will Levis, who some people thought could have gone in the top fifteen, right? So to jump into that that draft was probably, I think, what you have to keep in mind, Stu. And this is something that kind of gets reinforced to me by when I had to do this mock draft, you know, exercise like a month ago. No matter how many really gifted quarterbacks are in they're not there are not enough teams that need quarterbacks that badly they're going to burn a first round pick because once you got past like you know team 15 or the, around the 15th pick you get into the bottom of that first round and i think it's much different i want to exp- like because i think it's a fair point to talk about but like If I wasn't doing this, I wouldn't really think in this context, but it was just something where, you know, I went through it myself and I'm looking at this going, well, who really needs a quarterback here if I got Will Levis or Hendon Hooker out there? And it's just not as many teams because you go through it and I'll take you to, let's go down past, um, all right, just go through the draft. So obviously the Panthers needed a quarterback. They took one. Texans needed one, took one. Um, the Colts needed one, took one. Then you get to the Seahawks. They just spent a ton of money on, on Geno Smith. You have the Cardinals. They have Kyler Murray. You have the Raiders. They could have took, could have taken one, uh, but didn't. But obviously, they have they signed a quarterback. You have the Falcons. It's year two for Desmond Ritter. You have the Eagles. They're definitely not taking a quarterback. You have the Bears. They're not taking a quarterback. Titans were one, but Ryan Tannehill has, has got one year under his contract. The Lions... Probably we're not going to. The Packers have love. The Steelers just took Kenny Pickett. The Jets just signed Aaron Rodgers. The Commanders could have used one. That's one. But they feel like they want to give Sam Howell a chance. Then you get to the Patriots, no. The Bucks, maybe. The Seahawks, again, no. The Chargers, definitely not. The Ravens, definitely not. The Vikings have Cousins, probably not. The Giants just spent a ton of money on Daniel Jones. The Bills, definitely not. The Cowboys, definitely not. The Jaguars, definitely not. The Bengals, definitely not. Saints just took David Carr. Back to the Eagles and then Mahomes. So, like, my point on that is there's not a lot of teams, and a lot of those guys I just rattled off are guys who are still in their 20s. It's not like they're, like, 42 and we're going to, you know, whatever. Like, the Bengals and the Chiefs and the Bills and a bunch of these teams they're not going to need a quarterback for a long time unless they have a horrific injury. So that's why I think if you're Michael Penix Jr. or somebody, you're going, all right, there's already three or four guys. Well, one of those guys didn't find a landing spot. You know, he ended up falling out of the first round entirely. And that's Will Levis. That, so, I mean, I said all that to try to explain why you just wouldn't just jump in the draft. Yeah, well, if I were, if I were drafting this past draft and Penix was available – I'd rather have him than Anthony Richardson or Will Levis. So, um, but you haven't but, evaluated them at all. You haven't sat down with anybody. No, I'm just going based on what I, I seen seen in college. But I, I'm. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the the cycle. In full that disclosure: goes on. You would have taken Kellen Moore over Anthony Richardson. Heck yeah, heck yeah. Um, 
winningest college quarterback of all time. And you would take and you would have taken him over Will Levis too, I believe. Correct. I, 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 let's not get into Will Levis. That you'll you'll get me. Uh, you'll get you'll get my. No, I'm I don't, I don't, I, the guy's not. He's not an NFL quarterback yet. Let's be nice. Um, so. No, what I was going to say is I'll be very curious over the next year to see how this cycle plays out. If Because last year, believe it or not, this may be the first time this has ever happened. Bryce Young and CJ Stroud were 1-2 in every way too early 2023 mock draft. And they year later, that's exactly how it played out. And I think you're going to see right now in the next couple of days that next year's draft is all about Caleb Williams and Drake May. With Caleb Williams, I assume being in a in a you know on an island unto himself. I could I, mean, I don't know who these teams are going to tank for him. Um, but, Mar- but Marvin Drake Harrison May is, Jr. Marvin Harrison Jr. May. I'm just talking about quarterbacks, himself. just to quarterbacks. Those two are you know considered head and shoulders above the rest. Will we <clears throat> over the course of the year see? Well, maybe we're starting to find some flaws in Caleb, even though he won the Heisman and he's you know, absolutely ridiculously talented. Maybe there's some flaws there. Maybe we can talk, because that's what happened to Will Levis. I honestly think the Will Levis hype machine is a problem. Will Levis of, did not win a Heisman, though. No, but no, 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 the opposite. Bryce Young won the Heisman. C.J. Stroud was a Heisman finalist. And I think it would have been too boring for ESPN if to just have this storyline all year of like, those are the two QBs. There's no other QBs we need to talk about. They had to find somebody else to hype up that, well, maybe this guy could be an alternative to Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud. You're, and blaming, somehow, you're blaming ESPN. And for somehow that person was Will Levis. You're blaming ESPN for manufacturing Will Levis. The day Levis. I realized the Will Levis thing was, was getting a little out of hand was the Kentucky, I believe it was the Kentucky Ole Miss game. It was an early season game last year. And Ole Miss, and I think it was Ole Miss, Kentucky, and the game broadcast. Please tell me our guy, Joe Tessitore, is not calling this game. That you're about, not to, Joe voice, I you're think about it was, to voice Tim under the bus. I'm not going to say who it was because I don't exactly remember, and I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. I just remember at the start of the what broadcast. What is the game? What is the game? Well, so uh, McShay was on the field. This is why it happened. McShay was on the field for this game, and I think they were specifically using him for that game because it was going to be the theme of the game was Will Levis could be the number one pick. They couldn't stop talking about it. This is going to be our chance to see the possible future number one pick, Will Levis. And I'm going, is this real? Like, what is happening right now? Um, They almost won that game, actually. But, you know, obviously he struggled uh, most of the season. Let's get away from the draft into college football itself. The transfer portal, uh, the second, second transfer portal window closed today, April 30th. I think safe to say this one was not as active as the It is not, but one. there was there will still be some names that will trickle out because you know compliance isn't necessarily working over the weekend. Mm-hmm. So you'll probably still see some names go into the portal um Monday. But we had a couple of eventful ones since our last podcast and one particularly eventful program. So let's start with Tyler Buckner, Notre Dame's opening day starting quarterback last year who got hurt. Then came back and 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 played in the bowl game. Um, is now the likely starting quarterback at Alabama. It happened like within 24 hours. Like we on this podcast with David Ubb and I think I said I would be really surprised if Alabama, if Nick Saban's going to ride with the guys he has. And sure enough, within a couple of days, his OC Tommy Reese brings down his former Notre, the quarterback he named Notre Dame starter a year earlier. Um, a lot of reaction to this was, uh oh. <laughs> If Nick Saban thinks that's their best option, 
What does that say about the quarterbacks in that room? What does that say about their prospects for 2023? The more optimistic view would be, hey, Tyler Buckner didn't get much of a chance yet. I mean, he got hurt in the second game of the season. Um, I think he he I think he played in three games all season. Um, you know, let's see what what they can do with him. What do you say about this? I mean, keep in mind, and I went on uh, Cole Kubelik and Greg McElroy's show the other day, and we talked about this very thing. And the you know, I I think it was Greg who had asked like. You know, what do you make of people who, you know, maybe a little panicked or uncomfortable by this? And my thinking was, I, I, not that I get where they're coming from, but there's a side of this where Tommy Reese, if he didn't go get hired at Alabama, was going to be the offensive coordinator there. And he was bringing in Sam Hartman, certainly to compete for the job, but was the expected guy to take over and win the job. And so, you know, I, I think that I don't want to say that's an indictment of his feeling on on Tyler or Buckner, but I think that's where some of this some of this kind of sentiment probably comes from. You know, if Notre Dame didn't take Tyler Buckner, I mean, sorry, didn't take Sam Hartman, you know, he probably's not transferring then. But if if not, I think that's one of the things that like, okay, did you feel that great about him beforehand, or is this just the best of maybe a rather mediocre set of options. I think, I mean, never question the greatest coach of all time. Right. But he may have, Saban may have made a miscalculation. If he had decided in December, you know what, based on what we've seen so far of Jalen Milrow, Ty Simpson, I'm not so sure either of those guys is going to be ready for next year. Let's go bring in a Sam Hartman or somebody of that, right. That was available last December. Um, Devin Leary you know, guys who are like really accomplished college quarterbacks, then you'd be feeling really good right now. He decided after the end of spring ball to bring somebody in. And as we were saying earlier, those kind of guys didn't enter the portal um, this time. Uh, it's next level down. It's Peyton Thorne, who was Michigan State's starting quarterback the last two years. He was the, you know, to his credit, the quarterback for the team that won 11 games two years ago. Um but he but was battling to keep his job. Battling to keep his job. He had a day, big yeah. step back his second year. He entered the portal on Sunday along with Michigan State's best receiver, Keon Coleman. Something's going on. And one of their best cornerbacks. Something's going on in East Lansing. Um, those are the kind of guys that entered the portal this time. Not Sam Hartman, Devin Leary. Um, there was a time when Grayson McCall was in there. Obviously, he came back to Coastal. So it's okay. I mean, it's not. I mean, as Andy Staples wrote, the. The weird thing is not that this is happening. It's the it's the insane run he just had where he had four straight starting quarterbacks over the span of seven years who are all either in the NFL or in Bryce Young's case, uh, just was the number one pick. It's OK to have a year where you're like, yeah, you know what? We need to bring somebody else in. He just didn't necessarily bring in the the a kind of guy that wows you. So it, I had concerns about Alabama already. I would not say getting Tyler Buckner eased those concerns in any way so let's uh, let's cut to the chase if i'm understanding what you're saying to read between the lines that you're putting up uh you're probably not going to have alabama in your top 10 this preseason maybe not even in the top 20 yeah no no that's not (laughs) i mean (laughs) first of all i am working on my post-spring top 25 i've gone through the top 10 
Alabama is in that top 10 somewhere. It shouldn't probably change as much this year as the one last year because there just haven't been a lot of roster changes of significance. Even, um, even just just milking this. Yeah. Even an Alabama team that you would be concerned about is still raises more confidence than 98% of of college football teams. You know, you're not going to find, I dare you find 10 teams that you're like, 10 teams that, yeah, this team's going to be better than Alabama this year. I think you'll be, you'll, you'll maybe find five and that's about as much as you'll get. Um, the also on the podcast last week, a, a week ago, this time we talked to David oven. He had just been in Colorado for the spring game and it had just the, the exodus or the purge, whatever you want to call it had just really started. We hadn't gotten the full effect yet. Um, a week later, Basically, he's down to what less than two dozen, maybe less than twenty players who are on last year's team are still there. Um, just an absolutely insane. I mean, we're to the fifties. I think it's in the low fifties now. Players who have entered the portal from CU since the end of last season, and most of them, as we, as, since Dion's not hiding from it, I think we can safely say most of them not by their own choice. Not all of them. Some of the better players that went in the portal did choose to go in the portal. Most of them did not. Uh, Aubin had a great story. You should find it on The Athletic where he actually got some of the guys that were cut to talk about that on the record. Just really, um, you know, what he did is not technically against the rules, but it's just really brazen for college football. Now the question is, having lost as many guys as he has, and get it, they're 1-11, I get it. You want to upgrade your roster. Did he overplay his hand a little bit? Are there really that many guys out there that you can get at this late stage of the game? And then on top of that, let's, I don't know, let's say it's a bunch of four stars. Can, can a team that doesn't get there till June, doesn't meet each other for the first time, doesn't practice together for the first time till August, have a cohesive football team? That's going to be an uphill battle, right? Because you're, everybody's, you know, essentially has missed spring. You know, your locker room has got to be completely overhauled. You know, their schedule, the way it is, is actually fairly front-loaded and being tougher. Um, I don't know. You know, it's going to be fascinating to see how this works out. Um, if I had told you, like, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I still think he takes them from a one-win team to, like, a four-win team. But... I don't know if it's you know how much more it's going to be than that. I just I don't know how you, anybody could predict one way or the other. Like I feel like when we do our preseason predictions, we should just put NA next to them because you you don't even really know who's on the team. Um, no idea how they're going to respond to each other. Um, I know they're going to have an exciting quarterback. I know they're going to have Travis Hunter, who's um, you know two way former five star guy who should be really good. After that, you know, I, I, there's going to be a few late ads here of significance. I think nothing's become official yet, but you've seen the tweets. Um, but I don't know if there's going to be 70 of them. So I don't know. He, he, you know, I've had people point out that that's what he did his first year at Jackson State. He turned over the roster entirely like that. But this is a power five. This is a different level. And I don't know that somebody else's leftovers uh is going to necessarily cut it here so you can't be worse colorado can't possibly be worse than they were last year uh so i would think they'll be better but i do wonder the way he's handled this has caused some backlash and and you know 
I would I'd be curious by the time the season starts, what is the percent uh, split out there of who's rooting for Dion? You know, that this is really cool. This is really different. Colorado hasn't been great in a long time. I want to see this happen versus I don't like what this guy's doing. This is not in the spirit of college sports. I hope they fail miserably. All right, Stu, do you want to get to the mailbag? I do. I do. It's been a while. As always, you can send your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Brian Black, hey, Stu and Bruce. Last year, Virginia, BC, Syracuse, and Virginia Tech all finished at or near the bottom of the ACC. Pitt is the only school north of the Carolinas to have any recent success competing for conference championships. So, which of BC, Syracuse, Virginia Tech, and Virginia is most likely to compete for a conference title in the next four years? All right, so it's Pitt. I'm sorry, so it's Syracuse, BC, Virginia, and Virginia Tech? That's correct. That's um, a, that's a, those are some really appealing choices, aren't they? Yeah, I man, I think BC will be the most improved of that group this season. But just the idea that they are going to overtake Clemson and Florida State now that Florida State's going, um, I also think Louisville is going to be tough with with quick, Brom there. Quick note, Bruce: no more divisions. I, I'm, I'm guessing you're bringing those teams up because they're in the same division as BC and Syracuse. Yes, that's right. Thank you for correcting me. It's late at night. Um, no, that's okay. I, I, I have to keep. I had to do a little refresher myself on who does or doesn't have divisions now. You know um, what got me on this, Stu? When yeah. I went to look at BC's schedule, and I at, glanced down, like ESPN still has their standings up in there, and I just kind of was like, oh, okay. You know, the only, the um, only. I'm gonna be honest. The only reason it's top of my mind that there's no more schedules. Is because I was answering a different question in my mailbag a couple weeks ago about first year, first year, which first year coaches were going to do the best. Um, and I, Jeff Brom was on, you know, my list of candidates. So I look it up and it's like, huh, Louisville is not playing Clemson or Florida State, who they've, you know, obviously played every year since they've been in the conference. They don't have to play those teams every year. So now they're playing you know, more of Virginia, Miami, Virginia, Virginia Tech, Duke, Pitt, all these teams that were Georgia Tech. That's a bunch of games against teams that were in the Coastal Division. I digress. Um, I mean, look, Dino Babers has done some things at Syracuse. I mean, there have been some bad years, too. But I, I think if you're saying who which of these teams would might be the best of the four next year, I would say Syracuse. Does that mean they're going to contend for the conference championship? That's a big ask. But at least I feel like he's building something there. I feel like Jeff Halfley has fallen on hard times recently, but I'm not ruling him out yet. I mean, Jeff Halfley didn't have like an offensive line last year. It was almost like decimated before the season starts. So, And then the other hard part about this question is Virginia and Virginia Tech, you know, coaches just got there. I don't know how to even evaluate them yet. Fair enough. Anything else? Uh, well, can we give him a more conclusion? I'm saying Syracuse. Who are you saying? Um, my head would tell me to say Virginia Tech because that's the one who's consistently been, not consistently, but like has been the most potent at times. 
Um, I don't they definitely have the most pieces in place. It's just, is Brent Pry the right guy to do it? Yeah. I mean, I would lean towards Virginia Tech. Like I said, I think BC will be the most improved. Um, but I would say probably Virginia Tech. This next one from Joe Simmons in Greenville, South Carolina was actually, um, yeah, I want to bring this up. This is a good one in terms of our discussion last week with David Owen about SEC field storming. He has a modest proposal to fix the situation. Use Clemson as a template. Every game, fans are invited onto the field to, quote, gather at the paw once the opposing teams have shaken hands. Fans come out, get autographs from the players, sing the alma mater, tons of kids throwing footballs in the end zone, getting photos of Howard Rock, etc. And inevitably, some new college football fan gets roasted on Twitter for saying, I can't believe Clemson rushes the field for beating Duke. So what he's saying is, if all the SEC teams did that too, if they just let everybody on the field after the game every week, like it's no big deal, would that maybe stave off some of the more dangerous situations, more chaotic situations you get into after a big upset? I don't think logistically you can have some of those stadiums even doing that, though. Some of the schools doing it where just, hey, it's going to be like a meet and greet out here um, to begin with. Why are but they then, able to do it at Clemson then? It's an 80,000 80, seat stadium. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know enough about the logistics of how they operate there and everything. But I researched it a little bit last week. Um, mm-hmm. Well, first of all, you got the hill, right? So that's a little bit different than than most stadiums. But basically, there's like everybody knows the rules. There's like two or three gates that are going to be open. You have to come in from one of those gates, and they have them trained to wait. Uh, I want to say a minute or two minutes. They have to wait for the, you know, at least give the other team a little bit of time to clear the field before they can come on. So it's a very orderly thing. I asked Clemson, uh, Grace Rayner, who's covered Clemson for us for many years. She's she's a recruiting writer now. She said it's still, you know, it's not as maybe necessarily as uh, smooth as as you would think. There, there's still some. She said the, the hardest thing is the, the fan, like this guy mentioned, uh, Joe here, like there's kids throwing footballs and you're not if you're standing in the wrong place, you might get. Uh, hitting the head with a football, but it's not, you know, somebody's going to get trampled kind of situation like you have in some of these SEC stadiums. Okay. Um, last Vinny from Wisconsin. Hello, Stu and Bruce love the show with expansion happening in 2024. The conferences will inevitably try and invent rivalries for their new teams. As a Wisconsin fan, it is beyond annoying to me that the big 10 turned Wisconsin, Nebraska into a trophy game. That being said, I have an idea for a rivalry that could actually stick. The Trojan War, Michigan State Spartans versus USC Trojans. The Trojan War was a battle of Trojans versus Greeks, i.e. the Spartans, and featured the famous Trojan horse, the traveling trophy being a wooden horse. So he wants the traveling trophy to be a wooden horse large enough for two to three people to fit inside. Okay, if they did that, Bruce, that would immediately replace the Floyd of Rosedale as the craziest trophy in college football. I don't know how you would get it from one game, one stadium to the next, but you know, love the idea. Would the fans of the two teams care about this? uh, I don't know. You got to keep in mind, Michigan state already has a real arch rival. Now I know they get pitted against Penn state late in the year. You know, USC has UCLA, USC has Notre Dame. I don't think, no, I think it's a cute idea, but I don't think it's one that is, would get much traction just because, like I said, this would be USC already has rivals. In all of this, I agree with you with all of the conference shufflings. 
there's only one I can think of. You can correct me if I'm wrong, where they manufactured a rivalry and it worked, and that's Nebraska Iowa. That already feels like a rivalry that's gone back decades. Those fans hate each other. Um, I, not like Iron Bowl level of hate, but it's a real rivalry now between those two fan bases, and that didn't exist prior to 2014, 2013, something like that. Is that it? Like, is, I mean, Colorado Utah is not a rivalry as much as the Pac-12 like has partnered those schools together. Um, well, part of it's because Colorado has stunk, and Utah, you know, kicks sand in their face all the time. I think that they thought the Big Ten thought they might be able to create like Penn State Maryland or Rutgers Maryland. That hasn't happened. Um, Missouri Arkansas did not turn into some heated rival. Like, I just. You can't create these things. You can't force these things. Most famously, of course. You know what is a rivalry? Civil that, conflict. <laughs> you know what is a rivalry that actually got hot? Um, and, you know, it's a new rivalry. Well, not new, entirely new, but like once Texas A&M came back to the SEC, Texas A&M and LSU was a real rivalry. Mm, you're right. You're right about that. You know, Texas A&M, Johnny Manziel got shut down in uh, – you know, in that in Baton Rouge, and then you had the seven overtime game. You had the game where I think that was part of the game where Jimbo Fisher's like, what I don't know if this is nephew or somebody in his family got involved in a little dust up. Um, and so that was a pretty, you know, they obviously are, aren't separated by that much. So it's a, there's some recruiting juice in the middle of it. You obviously have the AD who brought Jimbo Fisher to College Station now works in Baton Rouge. So, you know, that's one of those rivalries where I think it's, it got hot now that, you know, they're back in, you know, they're, now they're in the same, same division. No, you're right about that. I think, um, as I think about it, that one, I don't think that one has as much to do with, with geography and where the fans, how close they are to each other, as much as some of the things you just described, like the seven overtime game to me, it's kind of stamped it as a rivalry. Um, there's been there's just there's a lot of you know the Scott Woodworth like there's been actual things that happened that made those schools fans not like each other anymore if they liked each other to begin with because it's not like they came in with some pre-existing history no but they played a lot I mean you know because they're so close like I remember as a kid them playing in games in the 80s I, you know the games I remember LSU was was getting the best of Texas A&M like that's a series where it feels like um, it's usually not back and forth. It's like Texas A&M wins four and LSU wins six and, you know, in a row kind of thing. But um, it definitely got restarted. Um, actually, no, I'm going to look this up. Yeah. So they play, they've played um, 58 oh. times. Uh, it looks like the most consistent period was in the, Basically from 1960 to 1975. I think they played every year over that period. Six, 1960 to 1975. And then they stopped for 11 years. They played for another 10. And then they stopped for 20 years. Almost 20 years. So I can't imagine today's LSU and A&M fans are drawing much on this, you know, the 60s and 70s. I think it just kind of magically reinvented itself. Um, once, you know, especially like you said, Johnny was involved in the very first game. Uh, he couldn't beat LSU those two years. So 
LSU, I mean, AM didn't even beat them for the first time till 2018, which was the seven overtime game. So if anything, it's probably kind of dates to that game. Um, all right. If you have questions, you can send them to the audible pod at gmail.com. A little tease, my early, uh, my post spring top 25. So, so take two after doing the first one back after the national title game will be out later this week and we'll see you next time. Thank you.